Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Beers with Engineers podcast. You are at the place where we aim to provide a pint of fun and an occasional shot of geek. My name is Bert Ushold, and this is episode number 10. Yay, double digits. Today, my guest is Charlie Sears, an engineer I have had the pleasure of working with for many years. First, a little bit about my company, Dexterity Engineering, where I provide medical device design and product design in general. I would love to help you get your product to the market. Plastic part design, DFM, tolerance analysis, whatever it takes. Please check out my website, dexterityeng.com, to learn about my background. With that taken care of, the title of this episode is, Are Some Engineers Becoming a Commodity? That was something Charlie suggested, and we talked about it for a few minutes. We also talked about the Virgin Islands, ice rinks, and scotch. There's a little bit for whatever interests you, so sit back, crack open a beer, or a scotch, if you want, and find out the rest of the story. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Charlie Sears, an engineer I have worked with for many years, but unfortunately, not in many years. How are you doing today, Charlie? I'm doing very well. Good to see you. Good. Yeah, likewise. It was a great pleasure to work with Charlie for eight or nine years. Uh, He's an excellent engineer. Uh, He was probably our most skilled pro-engineer user back when that was a thing. Uh, In brainstorming sessions, you could always count on him to have many creative suggestions. He's just an all-around good engineer. That said, there is one little thing that I used to be a little envious of Charlie for, and I'm not sure I ever confessed it to him, so now here it is. It was his phone number, or specifically his (laughs) extension at work, 1104. Why was I jealous, you might wonder. Because my birthday is November 4th, and I would have loved to have had my extension to be my birthday. Say lovey. But I will add one more thing about that date. Because that date is approximately each year when Charlie puts up his Christmas tree and starts listening to Christmas Christmas music. music. Much much to my dismay, but Charlie is who he is, and I love him anyways. So with that, our first question of the day. Well, I know the answer already, but uh, so you are not drinking a beer. But if you were drinking a beer on this Friday afternoon, what would you want to be drinking? You know, I've uh, obviously as we get older, you know, our, our tastes change and things like that. So you know, sure. I'm not so much of a beer drinker anymore. But if I do, you know, choose to to, to have a beer, there's one called a Kentucky Bourbon Ale. Kentucky Bourbon. Ale. I'm guessing there's yep. a little bit of Kentucky Bourbon in it. So it's actually fermented in a Kentucky bourbon cask. So, oh, you know, okay. whenever, whenever, you know, a cask is used to make bourbon, they do not reuse the cask. So they have all these empty casks. What do they do with them? So they actually ferment beer in them. And the beer takes on a lot of the notes of, of a bourbon without okay. the kick, right? Well, so. I, I apologize me for correcting you, but they do reuse them. Well, do they? Okay. The, well, yes and no. The bourbon distillers don't reuse them. The scotch distillers reuse them. Got it. So okay. I believe you can go to distilleries and aging rooms or whatever in Scotland, and you'll see Jim Beam and Jack Daniels and all sorts of other things marked on the, uh, the wood. That's my understanding. I think bourbon, by definition, has to be in a unused barrel. And I'm not sure if scotch requires a used barrel, but they do have used barrels for scotch. Got it. I should have clarified that, that the bourbon manufacturers do not that, reuse them. That is correct. Bourbon manufacturers yes. do not yep. reuse them. All right. So there you go. Um, 
we've got uh, that out of the way. Question number two. Do you have an engineering joke to share with us, Charlie? <laughs> I had to pull up Google. I'm like, oh, man. Really? I really got to think about this. I was like, oh, man, what am I going to find for a joke? But I, I, I do actually have one that I, that, that I thought was pretty cute. And, All right, good. Lay uh, it on me. Engineer walks into a bar, and he, gets, he, he runs right up to the bartender. He goes, quick, give me a beer, or there's going to be trouble. And... Uh, is like, oh, oh my God, you know, I, I, geez, I, I don't want to trouble you. Know, so he brings the guy a beer, and the guy, guy drinks it down. When he's done with the beer, he, he looks, at, looks at the bartender and goes, quick, you better get me another beer, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> and so uh, the bartender's like, whoa, wow, okay, all right. So he gets him another beer, and he, he gives it to him. And this goes on for another another couple of beers. And the bartender's finally you know, looking at him. He's like, you know, hey, hey, buddy, um, when are you going to pay for these beers? And they, the engineer looks at him and goes, okay, here comes the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> He's giving a beer until there's trouble. All right. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. All right. Thought it was very, cute. very good. All right. So we'll start with uh, a little background on yourself. Why are you an engineer? A little background. You know, when you're 12 years old, you've watched a, a Nova special on PBS or something. I don't know. So a long and winding road. It wasn't necessarily actually uh I really thought I was going to be, you know, a computer, you know, in computer science programming. Okay. You know, so, you know, coming out of high school, you know, so high school, graduated 84 in high school, you know, college yep. 88, you know. And, uh, Same year as me. You know, back, back then, right, you know, you know, computers were very, very rare and very expensive. Um, so, you know, getting an Apple II, you know, at school was life-changing. Right. You know, it was something that I just immediately gravitated towards and, you know, was, was fairly successful at it. So, you know, computers, networking, programming and things like that, I thought was going to be my path forward. But the, uh, you know, the challenge you know, was essentially that, you know, computer science and programming, you know, was was a, a career path forward. But the way you learned it and things like that weren't necessarily the way you learned other things. And through just pure happenstance, I ended up working at a company that was a manufacturer and had, you know, plastics and injection molding and, and things like that. And I've always been, you know, a person who likes to build. So, you know, whether you were programming and using your hands or building, you know, physical things or, you know, doing construction or something else like that, my mind, again, kind of gravitated towards the, the, the manufacture of things, the design and engineering of things. And back in, the, you know, the late 80s, CAD wasn't the thing. You know, drafting tables and drafting you know, was where, you know, my mind went towards. So, you know, I immediately you know, switched and started you know, down, you know, design engineering. And, um, you know, working at a company, I, I transitioned to work at a company that, you know, manufactured, you know, made, you know, designed and engineered injection molds. So, you know, became very, very uh, skilled at converting 2D drawings into 3D CAD because the... Making a, making a mold, you know, learning how to, you know, manufacture your flat parallel square, you know, working with graphite and EDMs, and then, you know, candidly standing at a bridge port in a milling machine, counting rotations in order to, you know, measure out, you know, one inch, 368,000. You just, the math, the science, you know, the mechanics of it all kind of, you know, resonated with me. And then, son of a gun, 
guess what happened with manufacturing? Computers came in. <laughs> so everything so, you're touching is turning into computers, Charlie. It's, it's coming back to computers, yep. So all of a sudden, you know, you have, you know, CNCs. So a lot of the machines that came up, you know, using G-code and, you know, the initial programs like Mastercam, you know, came out. So, you know, basically call it, you know, it, it was 3D, but it was all stick building, right? right? So it was all line arc geometry projections and, you know, things like that. So all of a sudden, you know, networks, computers, programming, manufacturing, design, engineering led to a eureka moment with stereolithography. Mm. Uh, I'd read about it. I knew about it, you know, through some design engineering courses. And Do you recall what year that was? About? 89. That early. Okay. Yeah. That's going way back. So you're... Yeah. So, uh, funny story, you know, since this is Beers with Bert, and I will, <laughs> will fill you out on this one. My wife actually found you know, my next job position working at a company called Santon Engineering, which was up here on the North Shore in Beverly, Massachusetts. Right. I live on the North Shore. It was right down the street. And you know, when I had learned about stereolithography, I thought there was no way I would ever be able to get involved with that because the only people who could afford the quarter of a million dollar pieces of equipment, you know, would be, you know, the GEs, you know, right. the IBMs, you know, the, you know, the Gillettes, you know, the, the really big companies that would have infrastructure and teams, you know, to support that type of activity. But Santon Engineering was a model shop. They you know, were big in pattern making and things like that. They had, you know, castings. They were getting into injection molding and, you know, building injection molds and things like that. And um, rapid prototyping, 3D printing of, of parts for their casting operations and painting was a natural extension of what is they wanted to do. Sure. But it was still very, very new. They were the first service bureau in New England. And they um, hired me. Cool. That was when? That was 90. 90, okay. 1990. Yeah, 1990. 80, it was 80, 80, late 89 or 90. All right. Somewhere about there. And um, you needed the 3D CAD file. You needed an STL file in order to run the machine. And nobody had CAD. You know, nobody <laughs> had those systems. I still remember the first computer you know, that, I, that I had was a Compact 38633 with, I think it was, might have been a Y-Tech math coprocessor with 16 megs of RAM. Right. right. With like a $40,000 graphics card in it <laughs> because it ran something called Aries Concept Modeler, which is an FEA package. And they were one of the few CAD systems out there that could output an STL file. So all of the modeling we did initially was, was with that package, which was you know, if anyone you know, has, has done a lot of FEA, it's just very blocky. You know, it's right. if you have any type of organic shapes and things like that, it was not suited for that. And right about that time, um, parametric technology, you know, was, was coming out with its Pro Engineer software. And I think I started in on Pro E at like at least five. You know, if, if anybody goes goes way way back, it was five, six, seven, eight, nine. All the way up to 19, then it became 2000, yeah, 2009, yeah. 2009 squared, and you know, yeah, I'm keep changing. I'm pretty sure that I first dabbled in it at three, and sure. then did very little, yeah. and then like a year later, the company upgraded to five, and then I started getting a little more serious into it. Yeah, um, there was a company yeah. called Rand Technologies that, that resold it in the area, okay. and you know they came in and they were trying to sell us on it, and 
you know, back then, you know, the, what, what ran everything were, were, you know, Silicon Graphics boxes, you know, the Unix boxes. And so you put a, a, a copy on our machine that was just an, an eval license. Okay. And it, and it was fantastic, right? You know, relative to the, so Euclid you know, was another one we were trying to use. Alias was another one we were trying to use. Remember Alias, yep. Right, you know, really swoopy surface, you know. Oh God, you know, C4 continuity, blah, 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 all that crap. And um, the Pro Engineer was just a much faster, much better, you know, tool for doing what we wanted to to, to do. Right. And you know, because of the pace at which you had to convert, you know, 2D drawings into 3D data files, you quickly became a little bit of a hack, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't designing something from a blank piece of paper. It was already designed, so you know you had the ability to go directly to your final result as quickly as you could, and that taught you how to be fast, right? Yeah, you know, that and that is... taught you how you know to, you know, when you hit a roadblock, you were used to hitting roadblocks, you knew how to get around it, you know, you know how to you know fix the system. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so we were, there... yeah. So, so we're the same age. I graduated high school '84 just like you did. And, you know, so we're kind of the first generation of engineers that have been using CAD since day one. Yep. Day one of our careers. I mean, I think I actually, you know, as a co-op, our group got the got a CAD station to, I don't know, it was for using building stuff. It wasn't really for uh, engineering work per se. And I dabbled with that, but still did some stuff on the board. And then, you know, first year out of college, you know, still doing stuff on the board and then got a computer there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was my second job. I was with uh, Ethicon Endosurgery in Cincinnati, part of Johnson & Johnson. And at the same time, the uh, less invasive laparoscopic surgery was taking off. And so Johnson & Johnson was just couldn't throw enough money at us. And, you know, that was, I don't know, I think when I started, they already had the pro engineer, which they're kind of dabbling with. Uh, what they used much, much more. I mean, that was their primary design tool, or their primary design tool was it was CADS Computer Vision. Or computer Vision CADS was the software computer vision of the company. I forget yeah. what it was. Um, Katia. Sure. And, yeah, was and then it was like around... Graphics. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and uh, Unix boxes. <laughs> and all mm-hmm. Good stuff. But they also, around, it was about 92, somewhere around there, they purchased to have in-house um, an SLA machine. You know, so they had a nice in-house uh, machine shop. They had uh, the SLA. They did the manufacturing there. So, yeah, it was a big company. Not, not GE or Ford, but Johnson Johnson is not too far behind. And uh, medical dollars are much – medical product development dollars are much easier to come by than automotive product development dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it, you know, it all, you know – it all led me to be, you know, a design engineer. You know, the, you know, if we if we talk about what it was like, you know, when we started, you know, networking was, you know, nobody had networks. You know, you, you start maybe if you had Lantastic, you know, you know, then Novell Netware, you know, came around, then the Windows work groups, and you know, you know, there was there was so much infrastructure being rapidly developed that, you know, you ended up with just a lot of knowledge and experience on how these systems worked. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact we had to work on a Unix box, you know, you know, understanding the internet, right? You know, understanding connectivity, 
all this stuff, you know, you know, candidly, I think we were, you know, right place, right time, right. you know, yep. um, you know, to do all this stuff, you know, injection molding now, design and engineering for injection molding, you know, used to be the province of the, you know, the United States, you know, used to laugh at, you know, the quality of the China molds, you know, right. you know, pieces of junk that, you know, they manufactured, but yeah, now they're, they're doing know. some pretty good stuff now. Yeah. Doing some pretty good stuff yeah. now. So that's what kind of long, long, long winded answer to why did you become an engineer? It's just because I really, I really enjoy designing and making things, you know, thinking about problems and problem solving. Um, you know, I, I view them as puzzles. It's, it's kind of like you were at work and saw, hey, that other guy, I want to do what he's doing. I don't want to do what I'm doing. That sounds pretty close. Yes, no? Yeah. 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 You know, candidly, when we used to sit together, I, you know, I was on the consumer products and you on the medical devices. You know? <laughs> I used to see all the medical device headaches that you would have, and I'd be like, oh, thank God I don't have any of that. <laughs> now, uh, now my entire life is all about medical. But Yeah, you, uh, you made that jump. Well, let me, that segues into one of my questions for you is, so we both worked together at Radius. I left and then you left some few years later and, uh, you went to, it was what Spine Frontier, mm -hmm. the name of the company and just, yep. uh, cheating and looking at your LinkedIn and I'm a little jealous of your title. I was jealous of your phone number. I'm jealous of the title innovation manager. Sure. So what was that job like? So that, so that took you away from Radius and into a 100% medical team. orthopedic spine devices. Yep. Yep. So the, when I entered the company, they were about five years you know, into development. So there was still kind of a, a, of a startup company and they were transitioning to, you know, being profitable. And, you know, the business model was rapid development of spinal implants, spinal devices. So, okay. you know, antibodies, cages, devices, rods, you know, cervical, you know, screws, plates, you know, all, all this type of thing. It was an incredibly fast-paced environment. Like my first product, so innovation manager was, you know, kind of a combination of, you know, a, a product manager, you know, engineering team lead, support service. You know, you, you, you basically filled a lot of roles because sure. they weren't a very big company, right? Uh, but the, the main function was, was principally as the, the mechanical engineer, lead engineer, product engineer, product manager, working with supply chain and quality to commercialize your product. So my first product, you know, was a, it's called an interspinous spacer. So people that have pinched nerves in their lower back, you know, yep. could use something like this. Um, when I joined the company, we launched it six months later. That's pretty quick. Regulatory clearance. And then we, we, uh, we had our, our first case, you know, I think about two months later, as part of that first surgery, two months later. It's a little surprising to me that, especially an implantable, that the approval cycle be that quick. Sure. Is that so? Five, five, ten submission. All right. So ninety days. Yep. You know, equivalent to superior performance. You know, it's pretty standard. And yeah, you know, there wasn't. You know, the 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 methodology behind the the commercialization of a lot of those products was get yourself a predicate device, put it through right. the test, get the test data. Build your implant as quickly as you can. Design and engineer it and build it as quickly as you can. Test it. Ensure that it's equivalent to superior. And then create the rest of the documentation for your five ten. Right. right. So, so for those, uh, let me interrupt for one second. For those sure. not uh, as familiar with the medical device industry as Charlie and I, uh, there's two ways to get your 
product approved for use. The first one, which no one wants to do, I think it's a PMA, pre-market approval. And that's for something that's brand new, never been done before, and takes a long time. I won't try and quantify it, but longer than you want. And then the second option is what's called a 510K, where it's something there's something substantially equivalent to it already in the market and you're just making an improvement uh, in one shape or form. And uh, so people bend over backwards, like you said, try to find a predicate device so they can properly uh, file for approval on a 510K instead of a PMA. So yeah, just want to throw that in there, sorry. Continue, yeah, no, and the subtleties to those too, right? Yeah. You know, so de novo and, you know, you know, things that don't require, you know, predicate submission but still require notification to the FDA. Uh, so there's subtleties, but it predominantly yes, right? You know, a, a lot of people are, you know go the 510k path because it's an accelerator. Sure. Right? All you have, all you have to do is, you know, get equivalent to superior, you know, approval you know, from the FDA. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, so you know back then, you know, there you were able to submit with statements like, you know, you know, sterilization will be, you know. Uh, you know, 10 to the minus six, you know, steam sterilization. Here's our parameters: 10 to the minus six sterility level. That's how. Yep. We didn't have to complete that, right? We didn't actually have to have the test data on file really? prior to submission, right? All we had to do is tell them that this is what we we're going to do, and they would write us back a very nice note that says, "Okay, you've, you've claimed equivalent to superior. However, you know, it is still on you to make sure that you, you know, complete all of your design controls. Okay. So, you know, having the evidence that you did." achieve your sterility ratio right at the temperatures and time and everything right. else like that, that you said you do you know was necessary so but it allowed you to accelerate things right you know that 90-day submission like once you submitted you know we were, we were off to the races you know we, we were you know finishing up the, you know the design and development and engineering of you know instrumentation kits doing the you know the sterilization validations you know and anything else like that it's just uh, a, another path in the concurrent engineering. Well, I'm going to do concurrent engineering. And I'm going to do concurrent FDA approval. Throw that in there as well. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, candidly, um, you know, they're very hesitant about that. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they, they tend to be exceptionally conservative, in my mind, you know, with regards to submitting to the FDA. You know, it's like, well, if, if conservative that's in what the way, way we see the world. If, conservative in what so, way? They're 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 afraid of a request for additional information or FAI, okay. right? They're they're, uh, they're concerned about you know what a reject means from the FDA, right? So if you if you submit and they come back and say no, you're denied, right? So well, they're not going to deny you. They're just going to basically come back and say you know I need additional information or right. you need to do this right. or that, and you know so really all that does is they put you to a 45 day clock, right? So you know if if you're concerned about you know running that risk. Right. Well, in parallel, while they're reviewing it, yep. do the work. Yep. If they come back and ask you for the work, then you know you can quickly come back and, and, and keep going. Yep. Um, slow gun, fast bullet. Right. So if if your if your if your level of success is once you submit, there are no requests for additional improvement. You you just get your letter after 90 days. Then then hold off. Make sure you have. You know, your T's double double crossed, your I's double dotted, yep. and and submit. Yep. So oh, the, the the paperwork of medical device development, so much fun. Yeah. So much fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about PMAs, right? I mean, that's just yep. ridiculous. All right. So let me uh, take an opportunity to segue 
So you were, you didn't want to be medical. Now you are medical. Uh, any piece of advice you might give to, you know, a younger engineer looking to get into medical device development or anything in the medical field? You know, maybe not so much specific towards medical. You know, okay, sure. I, I think that, I think the world is a little bit too simple for new engineers, meaning that they've grown up in a digital world. They've grown up with 3D CAD. You can buy a 3D printer off of Amazon for 1500 bucks. You know, I work with a number of people who you know have home 3D printers yeah. that, you know, are probably better than the machine I was using 30 years ago. Yeah. I think it's a lot cheaper than 1500 You can get it for like 150 I think. Can you? A couple hundred bucks, yeah. You're behind the times, Charlie. Get right. with it. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. But I, I think there's an over, over-reliance and, and trust with regards to what they see on the machine, what they can print out, and the fact that they put it together. Right. Right. So, you know, having some experience with manufacturing or, you know, maybe even going to work for a manufacturer. So, you know, turning a handle. You know, learning how to fixture something, learning how yeah. to make something, learning how something you know goes together, you know, it teaches you <clears throat> where things can go wrong. You yeah. know, because you just, I think people are just too optimistic. They just think things will work. Well, right. look, it looks, look at on the screen, and you know, now I can you know animate it. I can just click on this and I can drag it. And look how cool right. all this stuff is. It all goes together. It all works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe it works once. You know. Can you design me something that works a million times? Right, yeah. And then not just it works a million times, but I need to make a million. Right. So, you know, perhaps for the audience, right, you know, Radius was affiliated with Nipro, and Nipro was a billion-dollar worldwide customer injection molder. Correct. So they were used to working with, what were some of the Nokia projects? Yeah. Oh, yeah. went to China and went to Brazil, right? (laughs) That's right. I did a lot of flying when I was working on that Nokia project. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Nipro, for the record, Nipro still exists. They were uh, purchased by Jabel, I don't know, five, six years ago. Yeah. I had, a, yeah, had so. Ralph, Ralph Thibodeau on a few, <coughs> one of the earlier episodes. I think you know Ralph, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. The, um, you know, you, know, you build the molds in, in China, you know, 64 cavities, and you have to go qualify 64 cavities in the vine. Then you, get, you know, take the same part and you have to travel to Brazil. And you get another 30 up, you know, you know mold that you have to build and qualify there. And, you know, the, the design and build of the molds are different. So, therefore, you know, the tolerance associated with the part are different. And now you got to put them all together, and they all have to be interchangeable because your, your supply chain is using the same screen. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, nobody nobody really, you know, considers, you know, you know that type of thing when they're going through their thought process on, on their design and engineering side because right. all they're looking at is just something on a screen and then 3D printing. Yep. So, I, I think, you know, Getting a little bit more experience with actually making something, you know, working on a machine versus just, you know, being, you know, 3D, you know, design, engineering, and then printing, um, it would be helpful. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, learn how to create a drawing. Mm. You know, a, a lot of people coming out of school, they can't, they slap a few views on in a couple of dimensions and they think that's sufficient. Right, right. You know, it, it's funny, I'll circle back to the, uh, the cat a little bit. And the, the, I mean, so now, you know, I, I get my SolidWorks solid model. I get the three views. I can slice anywhere I want. And it, I want hidden lines there, hidden lines removed, whatever I want. Uh, back when we were using computer vision and CADs, it was just all wireframe. 
And so you could still make that view. And I remember this one particular example, I forget exactly what it was, but it was some part at an angle, we were doing an, some weird view of it just so because you needed to see it to know what it was. And me and the designer working on it, we spent like 10, 15 minutes. What are the hidden lines? What aren't the hidden lines? You know, the, the computer just didn't do it for you in, in a split second. But uh, you know, the other thing I want to mention, which I think you had, you know, your training as an engineer, which is very advantageous, you started out in the machine shop. So you knew Mm-hmm. all that stuff and you know I think it's very helpful the practical end of it especially when you're designing things and I didn't have to that level I didn't have that uh, working with the machine shop but one of my co-op terms the you know our department had a machine shop it was we ran it for the company and you know, I think I used a few of the things just a little bit but I was in there all the time talking to the guys and learning stuff and it was a great introduction uh, to machining and the importance of this and you know the old <laughs> the old joke you know you gotta have the id's gotta be bigger than or smaller than the od and you know this is the old story of the engineer young engineer giving the uh the fabricator a tolerance where the tolerances on the id kind of overlapped with the od and so he just gave him a handful of shavings all right here's your pipe <laughs> the od is smaller than the id you see what happens when you do that yeah, but you know, um, I'll, I'll I'll be honest with you. You know, one of my early early projects, no orthopedic spine space, right? We uh, we were relying on the 3D CAD data. You know, we you know our our, our drawings were you know critical to function. You know, and some overalls. And you know, we we sent them off to a machine shop. They gave us a very advantageous price and lead time to get these these compressors made. Right. I got the thing back, and there was no. It wasn't. There was no bend. There was no no radius on it on, on a portion of it and I, I looked at it and i'm like this doesn't even look like the picture how is it how is it possible that you you consider this to meet my print right and i said look there's there's an arc here and he said there's no dimension i said because <laughs> there's no dimension that means you can just make it straight and he said well there was no dimension Sick. all right so i've always wondered if there were people like that and you know, so a you never go to that person again i'm sure did not and you know maybe legally they have some sort of standing you know so you know occasionally when you know working on standard drawing notes you know there's you want to have some sort of note just to make sure you don't run into some jerk that's going to do that to you you know because a yeah. you know, like i said if they do it to you you're never working with them again but you still you need that part that you expected him to build to look Sort of like the picture in the drawing. Yeah, I mean, if you get into an argument over, you know, you, you, over the design of your part, you know, you, you've lost, right? You know, you're gonna have to get it remade. You're gonna have to redo it. You're gonna have to, you know, you've lost time. You've lost money. Right. You know, you know even if they admit that they were wrong, like, well, you have to pay me to fix it because you didn't have the dimension on there. It's yeah. like, oh, God damn it! Now there's more weeks. Now there's yeah. rework. Yep. You know, and there's. Yeah, no, they, that teaches you, teaches yep. you very quickly. Yeah, you know, school uh, school of hard knocks, as they call it. Yeah, yep. So, so this is this question. I, if my memory is correct, and thus far it seems to support it, my memory is you do not have a engineering degree. You might have an associate's degree. Is that correct? Computer science, IT. 
Computer science. So that's your degree is computer science. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I ended up taking courses at uh, UMass Lowell you know, for plastics engineering. Okay. So anybody knows Driscoll. You know, I, I did go over there for a little bit just because once I got into manufacturing, you know, but then things went back went back to computers. So you know, I was back in computers. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, okay. So your degree is in like, computer science, and you're uh, on the job training as an engineer. Correct. All my that's all my work experience. You know, is in is in manufacturing, design, and engineering, and now you know, supply chain, quality. Right. Yeah. All right. So let me ask this question. So, part A, part B. When did you start? When did you consider yourself to be an engineer instead of whatever else? And, and now that you're kind of in management, and about ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> do you still consider yourself an engineer? Uh, when did I consider myself to be an engineer? You know, yeah. I, um, you know, probably it, it took, I, I would say a long time, right? You know, the whole, you know, design engineer versus mechanical engineer. You know, I've always had the, the design engineer moniker, you know, okay. um, you know, there, there, there are things, you know, I, I, you know, if they, you know, if, if it ended up being more like a manufacturing engineer, mm-hmm. you know, once, once you really started to produce, once you, once you really started to rely on your own judgment, your own decision making for what it should be and how it should be, you know, materials, finish, you know, creating the drawings and everything like that. Once once you kind of transition to have that, that confidence, that experience, that knowledge, then you know I would I considered myself to be legitimate yep. engineer, right? <laughs> if you want to call it that. Not not the piece of paper that says you know mechanical engineer, but Oh yeah, the piece of paper is easy to get, sort of. Well, it's it's interesting. You said you seem to distinguish between design engineer and mechanical engineer, and mm-hmm. you know, one of my earlier guests, Nate Rollins, who you know well, mm-hmm. uh, had somewhat similar background where he started kind of hands on and you know got his uh, engineering degree nights, you know, on the nights and weekends sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he similarly said, "I consider myself a design engineer, not a mechanical engineer." That's what he said. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you see the difference between those two? You know, if um, you asked me to calculate the, you know, the, the power conversion on, you know, a motor to drive, you know, something over a particular distance. Yep. Yeah. I could do it, but I'm going to have to go to the books. Sure, sure. Right, you know, I, I wasn't trained in, in that type of, you know, uh, that type of activity. You know, but if you told me to design, you know, a, a fixture or an enclosure, you know, for that particular, you know, thing, Mm-hmm. You know, I could do that all day, every day, right? So, you know, I, I think when it, when it comes down to, what was an example that came up the other day? I think we were talking about, well, all right, let's just pick heat transfer, right? You know, if you if you want to talk to me about heat transfer, I'll be like, eh, not your guy. <laughs> right, right. You know, fluids and flow and dynamics and things like that. You know, we, we actually did a number of products at, at Radius, but, you know, we weren't doing any classical, you know, type of analysis, you know, free body right, diagram, you know, type thing. Right, right. You know, we... we physically tested it. We would, you know, design and engineer fixtures and we would physically test flow and, and you know, things like that. Right. Um, you know, so I, I, I would say, you know, any of those types of, of classical, you know, engineering tasks, yep. you know. So I, I guess, and not to say right or wrong, it's just that I would have considered design engineer as a subset of mechanical engineer. And it seems sure. like... Sure. Yeah, you, I, I, would, I, would, I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah. You know, oh, I, I think they're, 
you know, there, there are probably some mechanical engineers who, you know, couldn't design their way out of a box, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know. Um, but then guys can analyze a snot out of something. Good. And, sure. Yeah. yeah. Back, back, back in the day, you know, there were there are people who are very, very specific for FEA. Sure. You know, ANSYS analysis, strength of materials, and things like that. You know, was a was a PhD level, you know, you know type scenario. Right. Um, right. And now, you know, you know you've, you've no any schmuck can do it. Yeah. At some point. You know. Yeah. I mean, always cautious, right? You know. Yeah. I was like, oh, throw some FEA at it. Throw some FEA at it. It's like, wow. Garbage why? in, garbage you know, out. That's right. You know, let's let's make sure we're clear. You know, why why we're spending the time and effort on, on these these activities. Yep. But yeah, uh, so I'm you know, that's why I consider myself to be a a, a design engineer. You know, mm-hmm. for a long time I, you know, was I also had my my own shingle. You know, that I hung out. So you know, I worked nights and weekends. Right. You know, for, you know, for myself. You know, working for another gentleman, and we did a lot of electrical enclosures and. You know, of, of of the weird things you've ever designed in your life, you know, one of them was you know a uh, was a building on top of a roof that was to house a you know an antenna array system. So you know, was I specking out the components? I was not. You know, we had you know, other people were doing that. Yep. You know, was I working with the team to place them in space and figure out you know where they would go and how they would go and what the serviceability was and how it could be packaged and moved upstairs because you know the doors are you know only so wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, very good, very good. Um, you wish you'd done something different in your career. It's like oh, I should have. Software. What's that? <laughs> yeah, if, if if you if you if you look at the industry right now, right? You know, so you know. When, I, I'm when sorry, I missed the I, answer. I missed the answer. It was stuck what? with software. Stuck with yeah. software. Okay. Stuck with programming, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, hey, if if you. You know, when, when we started, right, you know, CAD and, and design engineering and everything like that was, was all new, right? right? So there was there was a high demand. And you know, if you could do it and do it well, you know, you were successful. Um, gave rise to the product development firms. Yep. So I worked at Altitude, worked at Radius. Yep. Um, what were some of the other? Worked with a number of design firms, Farm, Continuum. Yep, yep. Uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on a lot of the names. But... Um, it, you know, though, you know, you know, people who were skilled at CAD, skilled at design, skilled at engineering, gave rise to the product development firms. You know, now, you know, I don't know. I think it's a commodity, right? You know, I think, you know, being good at CAD, a little bit of a commodity. You know, there's a lot of people coming yeah, out of school. Who, some of that. There's a big difference between knowing how to use CAD and knowing what to do with the CAD. Sure. You know, you know, you know, if you give me a picture. You know, a CAD operator gets a picture, you know, create this, all right, I can create that. But they might not know what it's for or especially if it's going to be a plastic part, you know, with experience, you know that, well, you can't do this because it's going to be an undercut when you try and make it or the wall is going to be too thin for this. Side. You know, there's a million different things you need to think about. I mean, there's a lot more than just operating the CAD. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that the PD world has been commoditized, Charlie? So looking back at, our career, where we came from, the growth of computers, the growth of software, how expensive and prohibitive it wasn't a lot of knowledge, you know, 30 years ago in the industry. But by today's standards, computers are a fraction of the cost that they used to be. The software is a fraction of the cost that they used to be. You don't require expensive graphic cards, and the skill sets 
that we developed when we were younger mm-hmm. are people are coming out of school now with them. They, they have training programs, they have internships, they have a number of things where their exposure to CAD, CAD development is common. Right. You know, they, they, they know these environments. The things that they, they don't have you know, are, are you know, clearly based around experience and knowledge you know, with regards to applying those skills to create something that, that works. They also tend to rely, I think, a little too much on 3D printing. So because they're so used to 3D files, they are able to create designs quickly. Um, then they just they can print them, and they think right. they think they're done. So I, I think a lot of those those activities, those things that were fairly unique back when we started off in the industry, are much more common. You know, you don't have to go very far to find a firm that has skilled CAD operators, 3D printing skills, yep. uh, yeah. design experience. Now, I guess, I think it's hard to overstate the impact that 3D printing has had on product development. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started 30-ish years ago, 35 years ago, they were just, just starting out. But, you know, if you design something in CAD or even on paper, you want to make it, you had to machine it. Or, you know, I think uh, in some cases, the first time I saw a part was an injection molded part. You know, so it was a sort of quick turn, quickish turn aluminum tool. But, you know, now I can see that part, you know, I think of it today and go, oh, I just get a quick idea of what it looks like printing out and tomorrow I'm looking at it. You know, if you're going to invest several grand, you know, at the time in a, on a mold, you're going to make sure... You're going to spend a little more time making sure that it's right at the first time or mm-hmm. make sure it's right before you make that investment. Sure. I'll never forget the day that uh, Protolab. Say again? Protolabs. Oh, Protolab, right. Kind of came on the scene. So you, you get 3D print, you get very limited choice of materials, but all of a sudden an organization that could take your CAD file generate a quote, issue it back to you within a few hours, and you could order it with a credit card all on, online and have the part you know, shipped to you within a few days. Right. Machined out of whatever material that you were looking for, and even back when they first started, some low-volume injection molds, mm-hmm. was another accelerator. So you know, your, your ability to, you know, the, the, the anxiety that you're speaking to, kind of the the need to get it right the first time because when you commit to say you know a, a hard tool or an injection mold you wouldn't know whether or not you, your parts are going to work for you know weeks if not months yep yep yeah it, now, i so, so the whole cad and 3d printing you know i think back maybe we talked about this earlier in our conversation just the whole nasa and how the heck they put a rocket on the moon you know put a man on the moon and you know i know I sometimes gave me get a little bit lazy and I'm working CAD, you know, instead of spending a few seconds uh, doing some calculations, go, how do I center this or how do I optimize this? I just trial and error. Well, how does an inch work? Nope. How does 0.9 inches work? How does 0.85 inches work until I get to something that works? And I don't know, sometimes I feel that's not the best way to do that, but I don't know. Fell fast. A little confession. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it is a different environment now. You, yeah. you, 
I will say that the most inconsequential detail that you will ever put you know, into a product, into a design, into a part, has the unbelievable ability of causing you nothing but headaches. Oh, right, I, right. I, I, I hate to say it, but I learn this lesson all the time. I get cute with my designs. I, I you know, oh, I can be, I can do this because I can. And I think that that little detail is inconsequential, but I'm, you know, kind of impressed, you know, with yeah, my, my yeah, skills. Yep, yeah. yeah. aren't I good? Look at me. And I get the part, and that stupid little detail has caught, it's like, why did that, I, I know better. I know not to be cute. I know not to, you know, make something that is inconsequential important just because I, I over-tolerance did or I... The, the other interesting thing is how quickly you can have in your hand something that looks like it's pretty close to done. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have a six, eight month product development cycle and after a month, you're kind of there-ish. You've got, you know, your direction very well narrowed down. You 3D print a bunch of parts and you start showing around. Go, all right, you have releasing tools next month? No, 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 no. This is just the first one. You know, <laughs> we got draft, and I mean draft, just functionality. Does it work? Do the slides back and forth? Does it do what it's supposed to do? And, and you know, I think even as, you know, young engineer, just in my late 20s, I remember working with a uh, an insulin pump, insulin pump, not an insulin pump, but an insulin pen. And me and another engineer who's about my age said, yeah, we should be able to knock this out in a few months, right? And all the other guys said, you know, had worked on the last one, said, no, it'll be a lot longer than that. But why? They couldn't really put a finger on why, but just it just takes longer. And I look back at that and say, oh, yeah, it, it looks like you can do it a lot quicker, but it just takes longer. Um, whether it's underestimating all the little things or high confidence in yourself, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it definitely is. It's a truism. You, you can very quickly look like something that, oh, yeah, we'll have that out to the market in two months. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think underestimating and, and optimism are probably the both sides of the same coin. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, I can solve this. Yep. No problem. I can do that. You know, half a day. Yep. yep. You know, but all the decisions and things that, that you know go into it. And by the way, you know, just for the for the group, uh, when Bert and I used to sit next to each other, I, I would swear that. You know, somebody asked me how long it would take to do something, and I would give them an answer. I would have to factor in at least a couple of pro engineer crashes, and then having to redo the work again the second time. Well, so. I, uh, I think as I was a co-op, uh, some guys were talking about you know estimating things, and so I was like, all right, so you, you give your best estimate, and then multiply by pi because you're going to go around in circles <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> I like and, that. Yeah, and, but no, I, I do think. I have improved on estimating how long something will take. And uh, I do remember uh, someone who worked with Paul Bertram, who you know and remember. I think he said something to the effect of, so if you're looking at your hours and budget and you feel like you got a lot of time left, you're probably going pretty good. If you feel like you're, you know, running pretty good, you're probably over budget. <laughs> and if you feel like you're behind, you're in big trouble. And that's you know a different way of saying the same thing. He's right. So. Yeah, by the time you recognize you're in trouble, you are so far down the road. 
Right, right. Yeah, that, uh, you know, the inertia kills you in that, that point. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, go in a different direction. Sure. Uh, we, we've talked enough about boring work stuff. What do you do for fun, Charlie? What, what, I do for fun. what do you enjoy doing? So we are, uh, we're traveling a little bit more. Okay. You know, we, we are approaching 60. You know, yep. I realize you know people can't really tell that from the from the audio here, but you know, all my kids are are you know mid 20s, engaged, you know, heading off to being married, and uh, we're entering that phase where we're reestablishing ourselves and figuring out what we want to do and where we want to go and you know what the what the next the next stage of, of life is going to mean for us. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I we we like to travel, so we oh, we good. put a lot of our our time and effort into. They don't need to be big trips, just travel okay. to places. So not big trip, you meaning not great distance or not long time or? Either. Either, okay. Yeah, you know, so had some customers down in Florida. Not that you know, maybe Florida is a big trip, but we wouldn't think anything about jumping out there for, you know, four days, three nights. Okay. You know, if she had to travel down there for, you know, a work event or something like that, I would right. join her. Um, so That works, that's good. Yeah. Um, so where do you like to go? Any one place in particular? We're busy exploring the, the Caribbean. Oh, we, good. A, a lot of the trips you know, down to Florida with a customer spent quite a bit of time on JetBlue. Okay. And you know, we, we accrued a number of points. And then we kind of discovered that a two-and-a-half, three-hour flight to Florida could easily be a four-hour flight to pretty much any place you know, in the Caribbean. Uh, and JetBlue, right out of Boston, travels oh, nice. direct to a lot of these places. So. That's handy. You know, it's it was it was kind of convenient. You yep. know, COVID hit. All of a sudden, nobody was flying. So if you were if you were cautious, you know, and willing to get on a plane, you know, the the flights were very inexpensive, and you, sure. you could travel. Continental US was. was a, Do you have a, a favorite spot within the Caribbean, or just St. John's? St. John's. Yeah, nice. so uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, so St. Thomas, St. John's. Uh, we haven't gone to St. Croix, but St. John's is you know, is basically a big na- national national park. The majority of the island, so there's a lot of beaches and hiking trails and uh, outdoorsy activity. Yep. If you like that type of thing, swimming, snorkeling. So. So you doing uh, swimming, snorkeling, hiking, or just uh, mm-hmm. on the beach uh, getting tan? <laughs> yes, all of the above. Not that fit. All it's vacation, months. Bert. That's what you do. Duh. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of um, great hiking you know, okay. that people can go to. And it, we, don't, we don't go in the high heat of summer. You know, so we go in the off season. So when okay. things are a little cooler, uh, in order to get out of this, the snowstorm we recently just had. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fun to get outside, get outdoors, meet other people, so, go to different places. My brain's just a little confused. You said... Virgin Islands, St. John's, and I know my honeymoon, we went to St. Thomas, and I think we did a day trip to St. John's. Mm-hmm. If my memory's correct, kind of St. John's is less built up, but if correct. you like the hiking and nature, that's the place to go. Is that is my memory exactly correct? correct. Okay. All the cruise ships go into St. Thomas, so there's, there's a lot of activity over there, yep. and it's just a, a short boat ride to get over to, to St. John's. No, I thought St. John's had a few cruises going there too, as well. Or is that my memory wrong? Not the cruise ships. Not the cruise ships. They, they don't have the have the harbor. Not big enough. Okay. No, big enough. Don't even have an airport. Yeah, I know. We also snuck over to uh, the British Virgin Islands uh, for a trip when we we're down there. Yep. But uh, so, 
I think we established earlier we're pretty close in age, and you are an empty nester, and I have three boys in high school. (laughs) (laughs) So as I was thinking that, I was also recalling that uh, my first child was born when we were working together, and I think you said something to the effect of, Bert, what are you doing? Didn't you listen to everything we said? (laughs) I think what I might have said was don't get them involved in hockey, and you didn't listen. Oh, okay. I did not do that. I did not get them involved in hockey. We, uh, well, to the extent, we actually did have a, a rink in our backyard for several years, and that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I just, I grew up, never played on a team, but you know, grew up in Buffalo, and you know, there was a, it wasn't a pond, it was basically a glorified puddle, mm-hmm. uh, but it was about a mile away, and I swear, I'd, three, four days a week, I was over there skating two, three hours till it got dark and come home and do homework, go to school, lather, lather, rinse, repeat, do it again the next day. That was just freaking awesome. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And, you know, so to have the rink in the backyard, you know, it started out very small, I think like 16 feet square. Then by the last year we had it, it was maybe like 20 by 32. I was going to say, you have night lights and boards. And... <laughs> never got to the, well, never didn't get to boards other than just, you know, the, the two by six uh, things there. Uh, I did try. <laughs> it didn't work well, but it did. I uh, actually painted a a blue, not a blue line, a center line, and you know, painted a big U for Ushold in the center of the rink, and that was fun. So you know, being an engineer, I have to ask. So what did you do for a Zamboni? Did you uh, go on the, go on Amazon and buy one, or did you make one yourself? Uh, neither really. I just. Um, would shovel the ice and just flood it with another, you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to have a little post-it note above my desk, which said roughly how many gallons or how many barrels it took me to give me a, a tenth of an inch of ice. And so, and I would, especially when I was building up the rink, I would, you know, <laughs> I had a garbage can and fill it with water. I have a barrel filled with water and I'd put that on the ice and fill it up again. And then I tend to wake up in the middle of the night, and so you know, two, three in the morning, I'd wake up, you know, go down, dump the water on the ice, dump the other water on the ice, go back to bed, you know, of course, put my nice cold feet up against my wife. She loved that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's, but, there's, there's a lot of DIY or you know, rink rake instructions yeah. you can I've find on YouTube now. I've seen a few of those. Now. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But the funny thing we did was. Well, you learn how level it needs to be and how when you look at something, oh, yeah, that looks level. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. No. And so actually in the years while we were expanding the size, um, it was fairly level but not quite level enough. So if you come look at my yard, if you're a engineer who's done a product, plastic part development, there's what looks like an eject pad. You know, so you've got the slight angle of the yard and then there's like a little dig dugout in one section, and then we'll add a material on the other section, so you get this flat spot, and then a little bit of hill other than what the heck is that all about? So uh, someday when we're selling that house, the real estate agent will have to explain what that is. That's the place for an ice rink. Oh, that's a feature. It's a feature, exactly. It's not a negative. It's a feature. Yep. yep. So, all right. Well, I think we're uh, getting close to wrapping this bad boy up. And uh, we get to the grab bag question. And uh, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. This is the second try of the second half of this interview. We had some audio problems. 
So Charlie may be thinking he's going to get to answer the same question again, but he is incorrect. Yeah, I was going to pick a different number this time around. Maybe going to get the same question though. All right. So, so just for fun, seven, then. you're going with seven. Uh, all right. Uh, what is a favorite website that you use as part of your job? Uh, Maybe you. Got to be McMaster. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say you can't say McMaster. What's the second one after McMaster? Engineering <laughs> Toolbox. Yeah. Engineering Toolbox. Right. Yeah, they're 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 a good one. Um, but yeah, McMaster by far and away. Yeah. You know, so. I honestly think because back in the day we had to CAD everything. You wanted a screw, you couldn't get one off the web. Yep. You, you had to you had to make the files. You had to make all the files. Yep. Make the configurations and everything else like that. I think uh, having to do those activities, you know, taught us how to make a screw, right? You know, yep. you, if you're talking about you know thread pitch angle grinding and everything else like that, you know, you, if you actually have to CAD something up like that up. You, know, you understand it. Even something as, as stupid, simple as a dowel pin, you know, they all have grades and tolerances associated with them. Yep. Yep. Now it's right out of the box. You, know, you can yep. just yep. get that right in, right in SolidWorks. But uh, yeah, and I, I, I think I always found uh, McMaster to be exceptionally useful in engineering's toolbox, engineering tool, engineer's toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, was it? My uh, my brother-in-law. He owns a company. They make uh, pipe threading equipment. And somehow we're talking about one day. He said he likes Granger better. And I've gone to Granger a handful of times, and I think their interface for searching is just a step or two or three below what McMaster is. They don't seem to have nearly the selection. Uh -huh. I mean, McMaster's, it's, I mean, it's, it's freaking get everything. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard stories of people ordering things from McMaster that they didn't have, that they went and found and shipped to the person. And maybe that's wow. what I do if you got a, if you're a really good customer. But so um, just just for the record, the, the question that was asked first time we tried this was if the sun made Charlie sneeze, and the sun does not make you sneeze, but it does make me sneeze. And where to, oh, I lost my notes here. It's called the photic sun reflex, and there's some theory that it may be caused because some eye visual nerves and nose nerves are getting too close to each other. And, too close to each other and signals are crossing and all that good stuff. All right, well, I think uh, we're about done. Charlie, you get the last word. Any last thing you want to add, mention, say? Yeah, we just, um, you know, give some advice to, you know, anybody who happens to listen to this. You know, I think that, you know, whenever I talk with people that I interview for, you know, jobs, you know, I always tell them that the, the individual who is, who tends to be more successful than others you know, they are, they, they share some, some attributes. Yep. Uh, the most common you know, for me are, you know, they're motivated self-starters. So, you know, they, they basically come into a situation, you know, they're, they're new, you know, so, you know, if you, if you, if you're the type of person who's looking for a six month, you know, learning curve, uh, every time, you know, somebody asks something of you, like, well, I'm new, I don't really know what to do. <laughs> you know, that's understandable, but that's not necessarily, you know, the, you know, in the consulting slash contracting world, that, that, that type of response, that type of attitude towards, you know, something that's new, something that's different, something you haven't seen before, you know, you really have to, you know, be comfortable in that type of environment and then go find the answer. Right. Right. So that would, that would be my, my recommendation to people who are, you know, kind of getting into, into this business. Yeah. You know, if you can just be a motivated self-starter, you will be successful uh, no yeah. matter where you go. 
I was going to say, uh, be a go-getter. And excuse me, I'm just recalling that uh, there's actually a book someone gave me years ago called, I think, The Go-Getter. And it's about this guy who does exactly that. The, uh, the boss gives him a challenge. And <laughs> as it turns out, it's sort of this made-up challenge. And he throws in some intentional uh, roadblocks. And this guy just works through it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> if I had... I'm still in the last word from me, sorry. But if I was that guy and found out that all those hoops I did and worked through the weekend, yada, 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 was just a test, I could have been a little upset. So, <laughs> anyways. Well, Charlie, this has been a great pleasure uh, chatting with you. And, you as well. Uh, we, we do need to get to see each other face-to-face sometime uh, you know, before my kids get into college. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, take care, Charlie. Thanks. All right, Bye. thanks, Bert. That wraps up today's episode, but I do want to add one thing. Uh, that book that uh, I mentioned at the end, The Go-Getter, uh, I just want to clarify the ending of it. Yes, it was a test that the boss had given to that man, but it was so that he could get a big promotion for a very important job. It was something that just felt that he needed. And so the guy in the story was not upset like I suggested I was. He was proud that he passed the test and got himself a big promotion. So there you have it. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and you know the drill. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. If you want to be a guest, let me know. If you know someone that would be also want to be a guest, that's good too. We'll see you the next time. Thanks. Bye.